Good morning. My name is Colton, and I have the privilege of reading our scripture passage this morning. Uh, It's going to be Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 21, or 31. Uh, Mark chapter 10, 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions in the age to come, eternal life. But many who who are first will be last, and the last are first. This is God's word. Thank you, Colton. Well, we put out some communication from the church yesterday about what the services will look like starting October 18th, next Sunday. Hope you receive that. Um, you know, masks and registration. I, I'm not going to say anything about masks right now, but I do want to say something about registration. If you asked me, I think registering to come to church is pretty stupid. <laughs> I do. And here I sent an email yesterday that said, this is what we're going to ask you to do. Um, In our very weird season of life that we're in right now, something that ordinarily would be very strange um, seems to make a lot of sense. Not so much for this service, but our second service right now has 160 to as many as 225. One week we had 250 out on the front yard. And so... um, That's why we're going to three services, not two, uh, which we have right now. So if all of those people wanted to come back in at the same time, then we'd have a problem. So I hope we don't have to keep doing registering for church for a long time. Um, I don't know how long it will be. But just in this short period of time, if you could help us by going on our website each week and just letting us know what service you'd like to come to, that'll just help us manage because I don't have a way to guess what service people are going to want to come to. So that's all that is about. And uh, we'll see if, you know, as time goes on, if things can settle in such a way that we could do away with it. Well, as we turn our attention to God's word, I'll just start by saying this. If if you attend a fundraising banquet, 
I don't know how many of you have done that in the last year or so. Most of the fundraising banquets that I've been invited to recently, they're all saying they're online, um, at least the ones here in the fall. But um, in the past, they'll often the host will tell you, hey, at the end of the evening, there's going to be an opportunity to give. There's an envelope on your table or under your seat or, or something like that. And so I just want to flag that you've just heard Jesus tell everyone, uh, tell this man that he needs to go and sell everything and give away the proceeds. And I want you to know at the end of the service that that's where we're headed. And so if you want an opportunity to give the church uh, everything, if you need to text your retirement person Sunday morning and figure out how you can clear those funds, Jeff, uh, you work at a bank, you can help these people figure out how to get the money to us. Um, I, I'm, I'm being silly a little bit, but, but so that's what Jesus says to this man, go and sell everything, right? That's what he says. Like that's the words that Colton just read, which I'll read again in a moment. And we're a biblical church. We want to take Jesus at his word. Whatever he says to do, we want to be a church. Okay, we want to listen and hear how that's good for us. So then the question should be bubbling up. Okay, what does that mean? If, if we're not to go and sell everything, or are we to go and sell it? Like, well, that's what we're going to get into this morning, I hope. We're in a sermon series called All Who Are Weary. The idols that exhaust us and the Savior who won't. The title comes from a passage in Matthew chapter 11 where Jesus invites the weary and the heavy laden to come to him and find rest. And this week, the particular people we want to have in view, which to some degree I would say is all of us, people who don't just have possessions, but those possessions possess us. He's going to invite us to come to him. In the last week in the sermon, I began with a story from college, and so I'll just go ahead and start with another story here from college um, that relates to the last line in our passage, which Nate so helpfully highlighted in his prayer a few moments ago, that Jesus saying that uh, the last will be first and the first will be last. I was volunteering in a church youth group with one of my college teammates, so he was the youth pastor at this church, and I was starting to get more and more interested in ministry, and he was leading a youth group and, and was telling kids about Jesus, and that's what I want to do, so I was volunteering with him every Sunday or Wednesday night, as it was, and his name is Eric, this youth pastor, and there's this big Christian retreat kind of weekend thing, and so we take the church van and we go to it, and, and I remember sitting in the parking lot, it's goes time to leave, um, and, and so don't think church parking lot. Think like huge event, like stadium type parking lot. Lots of cars, lots of traffic, lots of waiting in line. And, and Eric's driving. I'm in the passenger seat. And at one point we come to the front of what is a line of cars that are going to merge into oncoming traffic. This is whizzing by. And my friend Eric looks over at me in the passenger seat, kids in the back. And he says, Jesus said um, that the first will be last and the last will be first. And then he looked forward, and then he looked over at me and yells, that's why I like to go in the middle. <laughs> and he slammed on the gas and just threw us in the church van into the car, line of just passing cars and forced our way in. And thankfully, you know, it's a church event, and people are like, oh, you go first. Um, but it was a moment that is like very clear and vivid in my mind, even now as I retell it. And I don't think it was quite as dangerous as making it sound. I think he had the situation under control. I think we do better with your kids when you let us come on a youth trip. Um, But I think about those words from Eric. Uh, Jesus said, 
The first are going to be last. Last are going to be first. That's why I like to go in the middle. <laughs> right? So at the end of time, there's going to be this great reversal. What seems important now will not seem so important. What's now lowly and despised is going to be exalted. That's why we should go in the middle. <laughs> we want some of Jesus and some of this world. Let's just have both. Let's be temperate and moderate and have God in our lives, but have him on our terms, on our agenda. That actually, that sentiment is the core of idolatry, the creation of a God that we think we can control. In the passage today, we read about a man who wanted eternal life. He wanted to know God and love God and be with God and be with his people, but Jesus seems to think something's off with his profession of faith. Look, at, look with me again at how this story begins. Verse 17. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, it says, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Think about how awkward this would have been. I think sometimes we miss the awkwardness the intense awkwardness of this moment. You've heard probably the story of the prodigal son preached. And as preachers preach that story, they often and rightly make a point of the father looking for his son to return from a long way off. He sees him and he runs. And the point is often made, rightly again, that how undignified it is for this wealthy father, landowner to run. Running was undignified. It's something servants do, not CEOs. And here in this passage, this man, who we'll find out later, is wealthy and pious, runs after Jesus. And not only that, he kneels before him, taking this posture of a beggar. And picture that near the end of our church. We're all going back to our cars, and some of you are walking up that way, which is where I parked this morning. And some guy from some mansion up on some hill runs down, falls at my feet, and begs me to help him, or begs you to help him. What would you say? How awkward would you feel? Look how Jesus responds, verses 18 and 19. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, just quick disclaimer. Like, I, I don't think what Jesus is saying is I'm not God or good. What he's doing, which is consistent with what he's going to keep doing here through the rest of this exchange, is pressing this man to consider who do you think Jesus is? Is he really good or not? Is he good like God? Well, continuing, Jesus says to him, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. That's an interesting approach, isn't it? If you want to do something to earn eternal life, well, then just keep the commandments. Just, you know, be perfect, Jesus says. Of course, our Christian impulse is going, but what about grace? What about not earning our salvation, this core uh, of Christianity that we can't earn our salvation? Can we earn it? No, we, we can't earn our salvation. Only with God is salvation possible, as Jesus says later in the passage. But Jesus knows what he's doing. He's leading this man to discover that it's true God is not the real God. Look at verse 20. 
And he, this man we call the rich young ruler, so we take rich from this passage and ruler from another passage and young from another passage, and together we call him the rich young ruler. And he said to him, he said to Jesus, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. I'm not sure fully what to make of that answer. I want to take it at face value because as we'll see in a minute, Jesus doesn't seem to quibble with him about that. In a sense, he has kept them. Of course, in a deeper sense, Jesus has said elsewhere that to look with lust is the same as adultery. To have hatred in your heart is the same as murder. So there's a deeper sense of keeping the law, a heart level keeping of the commandments that surely this man nor anyone has done. But Jesus seems to overlook that for now because, he's, he, again, he's going somewhere. Jesus overlooks that because he wants to get to the heart of the issue. Look at verses 21 and 22. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Many things worth pointing out here. Jesus says that the man lacks one thing, but then tells him to do five things. He tells him, go back home, sell all you have, give it away to the poor, come back to Jesus and follow him. So you lack one thing, Jesus says, therefore do five things, go, sell, um, give, come, and follow. Evidently, those five actions are all, when rightly understood, one thing. You want me to give you eternal life, Jesus says, but your hands are full of the treasures of this world and your heart. You need to have one thing money can't buy, poverty of spirit. You need to acknowledge your dependence, the dependence of a child. The command Jesus issues to follow him here to this man is is a common one, actually. Jesus repeats it throughout the Gospels. In Mark chapter 1, near the beginning, verses 17 and 18, he calls um, Andrew and Simon, and then later James and John. He says, follow me, and they do. They leave everything, and they follow him. Later in chapter 8, there's a general command to follow him, to all disciples, follow me. Um, But here, Jesus says to this man, follow me, and the man says, no. It makes me think about creation. And the book of Genesis, God says to the stars, you go there, and they go, right? They do. And then he says to the earth, okay, earth, you go here, you take this shape, uh, land, water, you go here, and then I'm going to spin you, and you just keep spinning, and it does. He says to the flowers, you go here and bloom, and they do, you, you know, You, lakes, mountains, rivers, birds, animals, whatever, you go there and you go there and you do what I'm telling you to do and they do. And then he looks at Adam and Eve and he says, Adam and Eve, any tree, eat, enjoy, except for this one. And they say, no. We will eat from that tree. There's something about the human heart that wants God, but wants him on our terms. Again, we read in verse 21, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, 
for he had great possessions. So you notice that phrase. It's not back on the screen, but if you look at it and you say, he had great possessions. That's true. Like he did have them. But the question we're asking this morning might be, if in another sense, not that he owned his possessions, but perhaps did his possessions own him? And more to the point, it would be to ask us, do we own our possessions or do they own us? That's uncomfortable. We view our money as a very private manner. Many of you, and I hope this is true, if you have a handful of dear friends in your life, people who, who know you well, what you struggle with, what you enjoy, what your, excites you, what discourages you, through the highs and lows of life, you have those kinds of friends. But I would submit to you that even those of you who have those kinds of friends, and I hope you do, you have no idea what your friends make. Like you don't know how much money they make. And I'm not saying you should. I'm just saying someone you know really well, you really, I mean, you might have a vague sense. They have this sort of occupation and they work for this sort of company. So I generally have a sense of what they might make. But, but you, we don't know each other on that level because, again, money in our culture is a very private thing. And, and I'm, not, I'm not critiquing that necessarily. That might not be entirely bad. But there, there are aspects then that influence us as we speak about it here at church that make it more difficult. Not to mention that the church has at times and sometimes very egregiously, perhaps in, in public ways that you're aware of or perhaps privately in your own church context throughout your life, they've mishandled money, which makes it even harder to talk about. Our church generally, I would say, handles our money very well. There's a whole team of men and women who think deeply about what it means to be a steward. A steward doesn't own money. They, they, they just they watch over it. They care for it. They, they use it well in the interests of others, the interests of the people who are giving, and most especially the interests of the Lord. We have that sort of team here at our church, and so I think we've handled money really well. But we've made a few changes at our church in the last 18 months, which I think have been good changes, but an unintended consequence has been that we talk about money less often than we used to. I'll explain. It used to be that at our church, each week during the worship service, one of our pastor elders uh, would highlight a gospel kind of scriptural nugget um, before the prayer um, and then pray about money, and then we would collect the offering. Like we'd actually like pass the plate and collect that. And we did that almost every week for the first five weeks I was or five years I was here. So two hundred fifty some times. And then last summer we transitioned away from doing that specifically to a more traditional pastoral prayer. Something more broad, or at least more broad in the sense it's not tied to money. It, it might be, as Nate was doing this morning, and, and ideally it is, theme, uh, timed up or linked up with the themes of the sermon. And we think that's a good thing. And now we do that, and then for a whole year we were taking the offering right after that. And so those two things, the prayer and the offering collection, like they were next to each other, but they didn't really have anything to do with each other, at least Directly, And then when COVID happened, we removed the offering in our worship service altogether. We thought it was a bad idea to pass plates. 
Uh, we don't want to pass the offering and pass the coronavirus, right? Uh, at least that's what many people were thinking at the time. So we took the entire ushers, uh, like the time of passing the plates, out. And we have ushers who stand at the door at the end of the church, church service. And it's very awkward. Like someone comes forward to bring your offering. And I know some of you have like stood there and you're like, you got to like look around. <laughs> Um, and then you got to like come in and kind of like lay it sort of under other ones or whatever. Whatever it is, it's strange. So now uh, they're in the mail uh, on the way, I think. We, the two exit doors, we're putting these nice decorative wood boxes. And so we're going to try and take away the awkwardness. Now, why am I talking about all of this? For this reason, each of these moves made sense. Right? The move to a more pastoral prayer, it, it broadens and enlarges our hearts to think about what, what all the things that the spectrum that we can pray about before the Lord as a church body. That's one move. The move away from passing the offering plate, that was a good and necessary move. I think the move to put boxes on the doors rather than a person standing there. I also think that's a good move. But the collective result of these three steps in one direction does mean that we could, as a church, be neglecting an important aspect of discipleship that was often emphasized by Jesus and is certainly an idol in our culture. Each Sunday, we used to put before our people, we used to put before you a two, three minute. It's all it was, but it was something. A dedicated prayer and reflection about money, and now we don't. And I'm not sure that's a good thing. We have this space uh, behind the shed in our backyard. And uh, for the first few years when we moved in, we, it was sort of just this dumping ground. Like when I do landscaping and for other things, we'd you know, take the weeds, take... I, I was doing landscaping on one, one area and we found these giant rocks. <laughs> like, I mean, like, like this, like buried. And, and so I would take those and I would dump them back behind the shed. And we didn't really already go back there very often. And uh, probably much to my... <laughs> our house butts up to a house. Neighbor, you know, it's like a long row. There's houses behind us. I'm sure our neighbor didn't appreciate that we didn't go back there very much. Because I went back there one summer. This is a couple of years ago. We have fruit trees back there now. And I went back there and I went in the middle of summer and the, the weeds were up to my nose. <laughs> and I thought, whoa, that happened fast without me noticing. I hadn't been paying attention, but they grew. Greed is like that. Greed can be a slippery, hidden thing. I mentioned Timothy Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, last week when I was talking about Surface Idols and Deep Idols. It's a great book. You'd be a good companion to read along with this sermon series. But in one section of that book, not specifically talking about surface and deep idols, but talking about greed, um, he has this to say. I think it'll be on the screen. Keller writes, notice that in Luke 12, Jesus says, this is another passage where Jesus is talking about money. He says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. This is a statement to the crowds and the disciples. Keller writes, this is a remarkable statement. Think of another traditional sin that the Bible warns against, adultery. Jesus doesn't say, be careful, you aren't committing adultery. He doesn't have to. When you are in bed with someone else's spouse, you know it. Halfway through, you don't say, oh, wait a minute, this is adultery. You know it is. Yet even though it is clear, mark this, yet even though it is clear that the world is filled with greed and materialism, Keller at least is a saying, and I'm putting it before you to consider it, Almost no one thinks it is true of them. They are in denial, he writes. His point is that while many of us would acknowledge that other people around us are owned by their possessions, very few of us worry that it could be true 
of us. This story here in Mark ends with sadness, but maybe that's not where the story ended. Now, we don't know what happened when this rich young ruler left. Maybe his sadness was a sign that he was taking the commands of Jesus seriously. We, we don't know. But I love the straightforwardness of Jesus. Look at verse 21. Uh, we, we read, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. However harsh Jesus may come across, one thing is true, Jesus loved him. If his words sting, it's because he's the great physician and he wants to see his patient healthy. The heart of Christ is for this man. He loves him and he loves all his disciples. The heart of Christ is for you. Speaking of the disciples, they're troubled by all of this to say the least, I'll read their exchange again back and forth here. I'll read it uh, more quickly in the interest of time. I'm not going to go back and forth and break it up line by line. But, but follow along with me here, verses 23 through 31. This scene happens with the rich young Euler, and then it becomes this teachable moment, as we say sometimes. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. And Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. A heart wrapped around idolatry of greed can be freed. Verse 28, and Peter, Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. <laughs> I chuckled just because I know what it means sometimes to go to the Lord and say, see, <laughs> don't you know what I've been doing for you? Aren't you watching? He's watching. Verse 29, and Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands. It's a big deal to leave your lands in the first century. They were passed down from family to family to family. For my sake and for the gospel, verse 30, who will not receive a hundredfold now and in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions in this life at least. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. It's fair to say Jesus disturbed the disciples by the way he handled this man. In their minds, a wealthy, pious Jewish man was as close as someone could be to being in tight with God. It's jarring for them to hear that apart from the sovereign work of God and salvation, this man is far off. The disciples might not have said inheriting eternal life was easy, but surely it's not impossible. Surely a good, pious Jewish man was just, was just close to doing the right sorts of things. Now, we would say that something like perhaps, like if you're the grandson of Billy Graham, 
and you're educated, and you attend church, and you just don't do all sorts of really crazy bad things, well then salvation might take a little work for you, but come on, you're like halfway there. But from this exchange with the disciples, it seems that Jesus doesn't think he misspoke. In verse 27, we read that Jesus looked at them. It is the exact same word. It's it's rendered the exact same way um, that Jesus looked at that man, the rich young ruler, straight at him with love. When pressed, Jesus doesn't fidget. He doesn't wring his hands. He doesn't look down at his toes and mumble. Jesus looks you in the eye when he speaks truth to you. Because he loves you. One commentator pointed out that we have two dangers with a passage like this, which is really quite a common passage in the ministry of Jesus. A conversation about money and greed and the kingdom of God. If we preached about money as often as Jesus did, we'd have a sermon about money once a month, not one out of ten here in our sermon series, or one or two out of an entire year. But the dangers, the two dangers this commentator pointed out um, as we look at a passage like this, are either to dull the words of Jesus or deflect them. We can dull the force of Jesus' words, coming up with ways to believe that what Jesus seems to be saying clearly, well, he's not really saying. The other would be to deflect his words as though they apply to others and not us. Perhaps your heart is doing one of those two things right now. Oh, I know someone who needs to hear this sermon. Every time they get sad, they go buy a new purse or a new fishing pole. They need to hear this. That's deflecting the force of the words. Or perhaps you're thinking, surely he can't be asking me to give everything up. I I really don't have that much. That would be to dull the force of his words. Because wealthy and well-off are always someone further up the chain, right? Like, we, we sort of, you know, can stand in a line, uh, you know, tallest to shortest. But, like, wherever we're at, wherever we, in our minds, stack up wealth, you know, wealthiest to least wealthy, there's always, like, someone up, up there that Jesus is talking to. We chose this sermon on idolatry on purpose. I knew what we were doing. I didn't get sweet-talked into this. I didn't stumble onto it accidentally. In your heart, there are ravenous wolves. And here I am trying to rattle the cage. On purpose. Because I love you. As we close, I want you to notice something about the way Jesus spoke to these disciples. Look again at verse 24. We'll put it on the screen. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children... How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus wants them to know salvation is so difficult, even impossible. It can only be a gift. Can't be earned, can't be bought, either with money or with piety. But notice what Jesus calls them. Did you notice that? What did he call them? He called them children. Now that may land on you. I'm I'm going through the passage and I'm just, okay, line by line, word by word, just translate, working through it. It's like, why does he call them children? (laughs) Is that demeaning? 
Is that, is that sort of a rebuke? Like, don't be childish? There's a sense in which we could use the word that way. That's not actually what Jesus is doing here. I think he means it as an encouragement. If you have a Bible, um, and it will be on the screen, but you could just see what comes right before this. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, we read this. And they, the crowds, they were bringing children to him, to Jesus, that he might touch them, to bless them, to pray for them, to heal them perhaps. And the disciples rebuked them. I love that ambiguous them. You don't want to know whether he's rebuking the people who are bringing the children or the children themselves. Just picture that. Grown men, disciples, rebuking these children, perhaps. Scram. Get off my lawn. Savior doesn't have time for you. Continuing. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, that them's not ambiguous, it's the disciples, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. When Jesus calls the disciples children just a few verses after this, he's saying something similar to what he said to the rich young ruler, but also something different. They have come to him. They are following him. And he longs for them to know that as they do, he's going to take care of them. Just as a father takes care of his children, or should. He's not speaking to those who don't know anything about sacrifice. Peter says, see, we've left everything and followed you. They have followed Jesus. But I think as Jesus looks out at these disciples, and perhaps at us as well, he sees people who are serving who are children, who are last in the sense of which verse 31 speaks, but still have a little bit in them that likes to go in the middle. Don't worry, Jesus says, the first will be last and you someday will be first. Even though as you follow me, you feel like last. I think that's the message of encouragement many of you need to hear. You need to hear that God loves you and you're his child. And if he's calling you into something difficult, alongside that, around that, before that, in, through, and around that, he's looking at you with love. I joked at the beginning that at the end of the service, we'd ask for all your money. We're certainly not going to do that. Instead, we believe Jesus wants to give you something this morning. So don't dull or deflect his gift. He wants to give you the chance to be still before him. I talked about that part of my backyard that I often ignored and weeds grew up to my nose. If the weeds of greed have grown up in your heart, if you become enamored with the wrong things and those things possess you, Jesus wants to free you. Use this morning to talk to him, to come to him. He's inviting you to follow him. There's also this line in the passage about those who have done those things and followed a hundred times in this life, friends, family, church, brothers, sisters, lands, possessions. 
There are some of you who need to hear that part too. That as you follow Jesus, as life is hard, as perhaps the coronavirus has made life hard, you've lost job, you've lost income, your life has been curtailed in ways you didn't expect. Wherever you're at, just know the church would want to be here for you. You just got to let us know. We would love to help. I'm going to invite the music team to come back up. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, I think about what it would mean to be this rich young ruler, as we call them. It, it, it seems clearly you're working on it. We're, we're working on his heart. The man who ordinarily would have been entitled to fall at the Savior's feet. Lord, I pray that you would give, give us the same kind of humility but would let it go the distance. That you'd let us not leave this morning church with sadness, but with joy. Because we know that as we follow you, as we serve you, you care for us. You care for your children. Help us as a church to be a kind of community they would be reaching out to those who's on the fringe, those who, uh, those who need help, those who need friends, those who need brothers and sisters and family to be the people of God. May we more and more, as we lay down our idols, become that type of community. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.